May our thoughts, words, and actions be holy and acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Today we begin again our journey in the Gospel of Luke. For the seasons of Epiphany and Lent, we were in the Gospel of Luke, and then we set it aside for a moment as we journey through Easter and Pentecost and Trinity Sunday. But here we're back again in Luke, hearing about Jesus' ministry and what happened as he traveled the countryside. Jesus and his disciples had just crossed the Sea of Galilee, where they encountered a raging storm, which Jesus quieted with just a few words. And as soon as he steps off the boat, he encounters a man who has a storm raging inside of him, a man possessed by so many demons that they are named Legion, a man who has had everything taken away from him. We read that he is naked. He does not have clothes. He's lost his humanity. He's closer to being an animal than being a human. We read that he lives in the tombs, that he is closer to the dead than the living. That he has been ostracized and thrown out of the community and has to live on the outskirts with the dead, removed from society, a man tormented to the grave. This particular exorcism is strange because Jesus doesn't really do anything. I don't think we know a lot about exorcisms. Perhaps some of you have seen the movie The Exorcist. I haven't, but you know, you normally see like ritual and things going on. And Jesus just tells them to leave the man. At this, the man screams, I beg you, don't torment me. Now there's a funny interplay in this story between the man and the demons possessing him. And they seem to go back and forth. And sometimes it's difficult to tell exactly who is speaking. And perhaps here, it is the demon speaking. They don't want Jesus to torment him. But I also hear the voice of the man. The man who has lost everything, who has been sent outside, who's closer to being an animal, closer to being dead than a living human being. Perhaps he can't expect something good. Perhaps he can't allow himself to hope. Perhaps he can't see a way forward. So he too cries out in these words, I beg you, don't torment me. Man so tortured and tormented by demons within, so conditioned by experience that he cannot fathom a love that casts out fear, that he can't imagine what Jesus would ever want with him. I wonder what we make of this story. You know, sitting here in this beautiful mid-century modern church with incredibly powerful computers that are in all of our pockets, educated to be skeptical about anything that can't be understood through reason, stories of demon possession can be difficult to reconcile with how we understand the world. How do we make sense of it? I bet if we took a poll of everyone sitting here, not many, if any, would say that they actually believe in demon possession. So 
So how do we make sense of this? What does this mean for us? There are many different views in Christianity of how we make sense of this. Some people say demon possession happened 2,000 years ago, and demon possession is occurring now. And these Christians have practices to for exorcism for things like that. Some Christians say demon possession happened 2,000 years ago, but that's a historical thing, and times have changed, and it doesn't really happen now. Other Christians say, well, people who were thought to be possessed by demons in the ancient world would now be understood as struggling with mental illness. And they try to figure out exactly what mental illness this person in the graveyard would have been struggling from. But maybe, maybe this trying to understand the mechanics doesn't really help us. Maybe trying to figure everything else doesn't really tell us what the Spirit is trying to say to us here this morning in Concord. This particular text has been subject to allegorical interpretation for almost the entirety of Christianity, sort of sidestepping the mechanics and trying to read the deeper levels of meaning. Augustine of Hippo, one of the founding fathers of the church, assigns an allegorical meaning to every single little detail of the story, almost to the point of ridiculousness. For example, the lack of housing means the man lacked a conscience. And the swine represents people who worship idols, and the list goes on and on and on. And I think the point for us, though, is Augustine wasn't so concerned with the questions of demonic possession Rather, he urges us to find out what this passage means for us. When I was praying with this passage and trying to figure out what it might mean for us here, in my head kept coming up the idea again and again of demon possession as an allegory for the traumatic events that we experience, the trauma in our lives. And I think this connection makes sense to me because it goes back to an experience that I had when I was doing clinical pastoral education, serving as a chaplain in Boston Medical Center. Clinical pastoral education is something that our diocese requires all people in the ordination process to go through. For me, it was really difficult. Every day, my heart was broken as I saw so many people in pain and suffering. And so much of that pain and suffering caused by society and sometimes needlessness. Once in a while, we would have to do on-call overnight shifts. And every night I was on on-call, I'd sit and I'd pray and go, please, 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 don't, don't wake me up in the middle of the night. I don't know what to do. And I never did get called in except for my last on-call. At 6 o'clock in the morning, the pager went out. And I thought my boss had gotten early and was taking the pager over from me. So I was kind of like, wow, she's in early. And then I looked down and it said, call Psych ED. <laughs> and I was like, okay, this is way beyond anything that I can handle. But I got there and I called the psychiatric emergency department. And they said, Christopher, we have a woman who says she's possessed by demons. Now, there was nothing at Harvard Divinity School that prepared me to answer that question. There was no class that I was taught, and so I took a deep breath and I said to the doctor, I said, you understand that chaplaincy is mostly deep listening 
in a non-anxious presence. And she said, yeah, I got that. And I said, okay, I'll come back. So I went down, and there was a young woman there with her husband. They were both early 30s. And she had not slept for three days. I had a translator in there with me. They were from Central America. And they were migrants. They had fled violence. This woman had seen people she loved and cared about killed. She had to flee her country. And they had finally made it to the United States. And they had been here for about six months. And their life had started to calm down. They both had jobs. Their three kids were in school. And life was much better than it had been in their country and through their migration process here to the United States. And she spoke, and as she spoke, she said, there's this evil, dark thing inside of me. And I'm afraid that it's coming up to my head. And if it gets out, and if it comes out through my mouth, it will hurt those around me, and it will hurt me. And what was happening is this woman was finally in a place safe enough where her trauma could surface. Where all that she had went through, all of the terrible things and the horror that she could witness was coming up to her head. And it was out of her control. Towards the end of the conversation, as we were winding down, I asked her if she wanted to pray. And she immediately said no. She said, I, 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 don't, I don't want anyone to pray for me because I'm scared of what will happen. A deeply religious woman who was afraid to pray. In her words on that day, I heard the voice of the demoniac shouting, I beg you, don't torment me. Because of the trauma she had experienced, because of all she went through, she didn't know what she would find at the hands of God, and she was afraid. The trauma of her life took over her so that she couldn't see the goodness of God working through the hands of the doctors, the voice of the translator, present in all of those around her. And so I think this is a good metaphor trauma. It affects every part of our lives, including our spiritual lives, our relationship with God. I'm sure that here in this room, there are some of us who've been through extreme traumas in our lives. And I'm sure there are some of us that have been through smaller traumas, but I know that each and every one of us has been through traumatic events. Right now, I'm particularly thinking about the trauma of the past two years of going through the pandemic. And I think it, it makes sense that these thoughts are coming to our head as the pandemic kind of transforms into an endemic. We have a little more space to breathe. The realizations of these past two years can be come bubbling up. The acknowledgement of not being able to engage in life-giving activities, things that we loved. We couldn't do those things. I think of some of our friends who live in independent living places who were not allowed to leave their apartments for months at a time. I think about the trauma of missing life's milestones. Last week, I was invited back to Broughton as they had a graduation for the class of 2020. 
And it was good and it was joyful, but it wasn't the same. And my heart still breaks for all of these adolescents who haven't been able to go through these life-marking moments. And so we have trauma of pandemic, but then we also have all the other stuff. We have the trauma of illness, death, and loss. That didn't stop because there was a pandemic. We have the trauma of broken relationships, the trauma of life at times not being what we had hoped it would be, the trauma of living in a world where our children regularly practice active shooter drills in school to the extent that it's become normalized. And on this Juneteenth, we remember the trauma of racism in our country. And we can't begin to heal from this trauma. And then, indeed, we can't realize the effects of trauma until that trauma has been lessened or removed. And I feel like that's a space that we find ourselves in today. A space where we can feel trauma. We can feel those tender parts of the self. The parts that have come out the other side of things. I really feel that we're sort of in the position of the man possessed by demons who ran up to Jesus' boat. We, we see hope. We see salvation, but it can be terrifying. Our reaching out is uncertain. Our grasp is tenuous. Our limbs are shaky because we don't know what to expect. We run forward to Christ uncertainly, fearing that our own prayers will not be heard, that our lives will be not met with compassion, that we will not find love that our needs won't be acknowledged. But what we find is what that man 2,000 years ago found, God immersed in humanity who pulls us out of the graveyard again and again and back into life. Peace in flesh who meets our trepidation with healing who sees our needs and comes only with compassion, the source of love who sees our nakedness and clothes us in radiant garments of joy. That is the person we find. This is Jesus, the person waiting for us on the shore of the lake, the person waiting for us in bread made body and wine made blood at this sacred table. It's this person who waits. There are many possible readings of the gospel lesson today. But this morning I hear a message of safety, trust, and love. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done through, no matter how much you've been let down, no matter the trauma of living, Christ is there waiting for us with open arms and a heart full of love. 